Hey, hey, beer fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. We're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Bad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we grab 25 of the world's best brewers and get their tips, tricks, and secrets right into your filthy little hands. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out. Yeah, and on today's episode, well, this is usually the part where I tell you all the fun things that we're going to talk about, but we're not doing that today because this is episode 72, and episode 72, modulo 12, well, that equals zero. And every time that number hits zero, it's time for us to answer a whole bunch of questions. So we've got... I don't know about thirty-two questions or so today. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a marathon today. Yep. So let's get down to it. We're gonna take a quick break here and listen to some messages from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Home Brewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world. Providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. All right, I guess we are ready to get things underway here right after a few announcements. Yep, and our first announcement, of course, is if you did not pay attention, last week we released episode 41 of the podcast when Denny and I got down to talking about, well, how to party in your pots. <laughs> party, party, party. Yeah, so go uh, go check out episode 41 of the Brew Files, learn all about Party Gal, or as I like to think about it, two beers, one mash. That's right. And we want to remind you again about our associate sponsor, Brew Swag. That is brewswag.com. You can go there for all your Brew Swag. Imagine that. Put in the code experimental. You'll get a 15% discount, and we'll get a little bit of money to help support the podcast. So again, go check out brewswag.com. Don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two more to our charitable cause, which for this half of the year is... It is Nowzad, winning the war for animals. Nowzad is an organization in Afghanistan that was set up to uh, help our soldiers there with the animals that they found and adopted. And they're kind of branching out into a veterinary for the people there. They're helping take care of the donkeys that are so important to the way of life there. They're helping to make sure that these veterans who adopt these animals can bring them home with them. 
great charity. It's veterans. It's animals. You can't go wrong. Go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and pledge whatever you can afford to help support them. There we go. And hey, you know what time it is? I guess it would be about time to answer some questions. Exactly. Let's answer some questions about beer, and let's get started with fermentation. So, Denny, uh, you want to read the first question? Sure. The first question comes from Chris Bigger in Montreal. I'm about to use a fermentation chamber for the first time and would like to ask for your advice regarding the controller. I'll be taping the probe against the one-gallon carboy. From what I understand, it's maybe five to eight degrees warmer inside the carboy during active fermentation. So if I want to achieve a 68-degree fermentation temp, should I set the controller to 64 for the first few days? Then after fermentation calms down, set it to 68? Also, is it necessary to raise the temp to 70 to 72 for a few days, or is letting it ride at 68 for a few weeks fine? And a follow-up question. If I control the temp for the first week while taking it out of the chamber and letting it sit for another two weeks at 75 to 84 degrees Fahrenheit, possibly create off flavors. I think I read somewhere that even after active fermentation, if you stay on the warmer side, it can increase the esters in your finished product. And he's mainly concerned about ethyl acetate, uh, fusels, uh, hot alcohol uh, flavors. I want to make room in my mini chamber for new carboys every week, but this has me hesitant to. Okay, I think that Chris has been paying attention to stuff he shouldn't pay attention to, huh? Yeah, well, so the first thing is, yeah, if you're going to tape the probe against the carboy, uh, you're fine. Uh, you're pretty much going to be reading liquid temperature anyway. Uh, plus, you know, that whole 8 to you know, 10 degrees or however many degrees warmer, that's usually people's best estimate on like a full-size batch. One gallon is going to be a little different because there's not as much heat capacity there. So, yeah, let your uh, let your carboy uh, just rest at the temperature that you want it to or, you know, by taping the probe there. I think you'll be fine. Uh, as for your, your question about rising, I know Denny and I disagree about this, but I don't usually rise on normal ales. Uh, you know, I only do that when I have a lager strain that requires a diacetyl rest uh, or my saisons, which I naturally allow to ramp anyway. And then finally, for the warm storage aspect, well, I mean, you're at, you said, uh, 75 to 84 degrees. I don't think you're going to create any off flavors. Uh, obviously, the warmer you store your beer, the shorter your lifespan is going to be, the more rapid oxidation is going to happen and any sort of oxidative damage. But I don't think you're going to generate any new off flavors like ethyl acetate. No, fermentation is done, so there's nothing happening. Uh, yeah, back to the first part of the question, uh, Chris. If you start adjusting the temperature yourself, then you're doing the job of your temperature controller. So what's the point? So no, put that probe on the fermenter. Let the temperature controller do its work. Is it necessary to raise the temp to 70, 72, whatever at the end? No, it's not necessary. It's a personal decision. Uh, I like to do it, but you certainly don't have to. Drew doesn't. Doesn't make any difference. Uh, so there you go, man. Hopefully that helped you out some. Okay. And next question is from Charlie Faraday, uh, also a fermentation question. And he's from Boise and he emailed us to ask, I'm looking to brew more lagers and I've been controlling my fermentation temperatures with a Rubbermaid tub with water, ice packs, and a towel draped over my carboy. This is labor intensive and not very controllable or repeatable. What approach do you recommend for temperature control that isn't fermenting in a corny keg inside a kegerator since I don't want to sacrifice volume as well? Since I've limited space, I've looked at the brew jacket system and wondered if either of you have experience with it. It seems to get good reviews online. 
Denny. Yeah, man. Uh, I love the brew jacket. I have fermented my last five batches with it, and it has worked just exactly like they say it's going to. I guess we talked a little bit about this in our episode from HBC. My garage fluctuated, say, between 45 and 85 degrees, and as they claim, the brew jacket held that temperature within 30 degrees of the ambient temperature. Uh it, it works flawlessly. It's easy to use. So uh, if you're thinking about getting one, I can't see a downside. Yeah, I can't wait to use mine. My problem is that every time I go to brew, Mother Nature decides that it needs to be over 100 degrees. Well, you know what? That's the way it's been here, too. I was going to brew this week and use the brew jacket. And then I just realized that, man, we're going to be 100 degrees plus this week. And uh, that's just not going to work for me. So, you know, again, if you have limited space, if you're putting your fermenter in a closet, something like that, uh, brew jacket is a, is a really, really good solution. Yeah, I was going to say you're kind of in the ideal use case slash test market for exactly what they're going for. Yeah, exactly. Okay, our next uh, question comes from Sven, the German in England. He says, I've been fortunate not to have had too many off flavors, but I did once have a really awful tasting brew. I plan to make three batches of Weiss beer from a batch of Y yeast. I made a large starter, pitched half, and kept the other half, which in turn got made into a bigger starter for a third brew. Brew one went fine, no issues. Brew three, also great. Now, brew two was the odd one. Everything was fine, and the yeast starter smelled good. I pitched the yeast and left it to do its thing. It smelled fine, but once I pulled a sample to get a gravity reading, there was an off aroma. Nothing bad, but tasting it was an entirely different matter. It tasted burnt and of nail varnish. I was advised by forum members to give it a bit longer. I gave it another week and a half, but nothing changed at all. It wasn't drinkable. I ended up pouring it away, and luckily I only made a 12-liter batch. I believe the issue came from the blow-off I used. The other two were fitted with regular airlocks, but I thought I would try a blow-off for the second one. I think I forgot to sanitize the hose, and this somehow ended up putting evil in my beer. Ooh. <laughs> Live and learn. I still have no idea what could cause a burnt and varnishy taste. Some things I have read attribute the varnish to an infection, but different sites have suggested different things. So any ideas as to what can add such flavors to the beer? Okay, man, your turn. Uh, so, yeah, contamination. V uh, varnish and plasticky things, those are, those are phenols. And if they're in that sort of thing, uh, that sort of flavor and aroma, and particularly burnt, type flavors unless you added smoked malt or scorched or mash uh congratulations you got yourself a contamination so if your only difference was the blow-off tube and you actually went and used a portion of that yeast for uh, batch number three you know when you said you stepped up the starter i assume you pitched one part into batch two and held on to the other part for batch three uh yeah you got a writer and if if your blow-off tube you know let's say you got enough foam coming up into the blow-off tube but it didn't necessarily have enough velocity to crest out and then it dropped back in because foam dissolves over time. Because remember, the classic equation is foam plus time equals beer. Then, yeah, you could have very easily carried some contaminant back in from your blow-off tube straight back into the carboy. And there you go. Bob's your uncle. Your beer is done. All right. So our next question comes from James Wilson from the UK. And Denny, you'll take this one. It says, you've mentioned in the past reusing a yeast cake for very big beers. I was wondering what a good procedure is for doing this. How long do you leave the previous beer on the yeast before using it? Do you rack the yeast into a new fermenter? Or do you just put the new beer straight into the old one? 
What about oxygenation? Okay. Well, um, yeah, it's it's pretty easy. That the easiest thing to do is to just leave that yeast cake in the fermenter and rack the new beer right onto it. How long do you leave the previous beer? Well, you leave it until it's done fermenting. Of course, you don't you don't want to take it off before it's done. So. Uh, you know, you can obviously take that yeast, pour it into a new fermenter. There's really no need to do that. Let You know, if, if the batch that just came out of the fermenter wasn't infected, there's no reason that the one going into that same fermenter will be. Oxygenation. That's, a, that's kind of a judgment call. With a huge yeast cake, you're going to have a lot less need for oxygenation. Although if you're actually putting a huge beer on it, it probably couldn't hurt. So I would say uh, flip a coin, make your best guess, and do what your intuition tells you. And here's where I disagree with Denny. Um, no, for me, I, I just know that whenever I do this, I actually will take the yeast cake out of the carboy or the fermenter, clean the fermenter, sanitize the fermenter, and then pitch back just a portion of the yeast cake unless I'm trying to go really bananas. So like even when I go and make my Falcon's Claws, for instance, that beer that starts at 1140, I will take that yeast cake and I will split that yeast cake up amongst say four to five batches. So I'm already naturally taking it out and splitting it anyway. So yeah, I, I get a little weird because I'm me and I, I will still take the yeast cake out and sanitize everything that goes in and repitch. And, and to me doing that is just another chance to infect the yeast cake. Um, although I do, you know, generally I don't use an entire slurry, but he's talking about very big beers, let's say like an excess of a 100 gravity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that case, I just don't see any problem with using the entire yeast cake. That marks the end of our fermentation questions. We're going to have some about ingredients when we come back right after this message. YCH Hops is a grower-owned global hop company located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms with the world's finest brewers. YCH Hops is thrilled about the release of their newest product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Visit YCHHops.com to find a homebrew retail store near you. On to some questions about ingredients, and Drew gets the first one, which comes from Andrew Roth via email. Andrew says, I recently brewed two batches of mead with mostly the same honey build on two different yeasts. One was a Lalvan QA3 and D47. Into the other, I pitched two packets of White Labs Abbey Ale Strain because I wanted to see if the Belgian character would work in a mead. Both were fermented at 60 degrees Fahrenheit and given a proper staggered regimen of nutrients. The QA3 smells and tastes like a one-month-old mead with a slight mint aroma, which I expect from the orange blossom honey. The other is a menthol bomb in the nose and has a menthol dried mint flavor. I figure the yeast are at fault here, but for the life of me, can't explain why Abbey Ale would throw out that flavor. I'm also curious if you guys think it will age out. This is the recipe in more or less equal portions. 
and he's got uh, early harvest wildflower honey, late harvest wildflower honey, orange blossom honey, raspberry blossom honey. The OG was uh, 1090. The FG for the Abbey was 1011, and the FG for the QA3 was 1. So uh, thanks for any ideas you may have here. I figure worst comes to worst, I embrace the mint and go with Latin or Thai-inspired flavors. Well, now that's very interesting, huh? Well, Andrew, one, great name. Two, uh, yeah, uh, I agree. If you, it, you know, that's a good attitude to have. If you can't, if you can't beat it, you know, figure out how to dance with it. So I, I have to admit, when I saw your question come in, I, I was uh, befuddled because I couldn't think of a good reason that Abigail would do that. And so I actually decided, uh, well, I have my knowledge about mead, but of course my knowledge about mead is relatively limited. So I reached out to our good friend, Michael Fairbrother of Moonlight Meadery over in New Hampshire. And, and I posited to him your exact scenario. And, and his response was uh, fairly short. He says, most likely the same honey is the culprit. If he was to replicate uh, with the must from the one batch split into two, I doubt the results would be the same. My belief is that one of the honeys had eucalyptus blossoms in it. So I think what Michael is proposing is that one of those honeys probably had a fair eucalyptus character in it because, you know, I mean, after all, wildflower character just really means, hey, our bees harvested from a lot of wildflowers, including eucalyptus. And one of those honeys probably had a larger portion of eucalyptus and more than likely, you know, either there was more of that eucalyptus honey in one of the batches or possibly that the yeast itself actually allowed the you know the eucalyptus character to come through. One thing I did notice is that you said the Abbey Ale strain had a higher finishing gravity by 11 points. So maybe, maybe just maybe, part of what you're getting is that eucalyptus character is you know some of what's in the honey just from what's stuck around. Now, whether or not it'll age out, knowing human sensitivities towards mint and menthol, no. It's going to be there. So I think right. you're I think you're going to have to figure out how best to dance with what you brung. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and Michael raises a really good point. Uh you know, unless those batches were exactly the same in terms of the honey that went into them, you're really kind of comparing apples and oranges and uh, that means that the only logical guess has got to be the honey. Yep. Or like I said, you know, the resi- the fact that you had so much residual gravity, maybe that's just left enough character behind that that's what you're getting. Yep, so, that could be possible, too. Our next question comes from Justin Vellner of the Czech Republic, who says, I got three questions, all very different, but all related to ingredients. One, I'd like to brew a milk chocolate stout. What's the best way to get a sweet chocolatey taste in a beer? I know you guys like chalaka. What's the advantage to this over cocoa powder or nibs? When do you add chocolate, boil before or after fermentation at packaging? You want to answer that one real quick before we go on? Yeah, uh, the advantage to chalaka is that you can add it to taste post-fermentation. So that means you can get exactly the right chocolate character. If you try and put it into the boil or the fermenter or something like that, then you just simply have to guess at how much you're adding. Uh, I'd prefer adding any kind of flavoring thing as close to package as possible and doing it to taste. And that's the real advantage of chalaca there. I agree. And of course, if you're not using chalaca, my other solution out there is to go make a cacao nib tincture, which you can find the recipe for on our website. Right, and you add it pretty much the same way at packaging. Yep. Uh, his second question is, I've made a pretty good rye IPA, but I'd like to take it to another level. I tried a rye IPA at a local pub, and it tasted like I was biting into a piece of rye bread. Think pumpernickel. It was delicious. I like the idea of pumpernickel. 
Then I realized later that they probably included caraway into the beer. Have you guys ever used caraway in your beers? If so, or if not, how much did or might you use them? Personally, I'm leaning towards putting them in the mash, but I'm curious what you guys think. Yeah, I, I think the mash is not the way to do it. Uh, you're going to lose a ton of flavor doing that. Uh, you could put them in the last, say, five minutes of the boil, or you could uh, go back to the tincture trick and do it that way and add them to taste of packaging. I think if I was going to put it in the boil, I would try, I don't know, man, what do you think? Maybe is an ounce too much? I think I, I would probably, if I were doing this just at least to begin with, because I've never done caraway. Right. Caraway is a very strong flavor, that, an, yeah, that anise character. You, you want to start light and, and work your way up. Yeah, I would probably say for a five-gallon slash 20-liter batch, maybe like a half teaspoon whirlpooled. Yeah, I would, I would, I would go not more than a teaspoon for sure. You know, an ounce would be probably like over the top. I, I think if you want an ounce, you'd be making licorice beer. Yeah, right. So there's our guess. Okay, and the third one is the, this last question might be a little strange. Don't worry, so worry. <laughs> have you guys ever made root beer? I'm living in a country that doesn't have root beer readily available. I have read some online forums regarding homemade root beer, and I think I'd like to try it. Here's my questions. Most recipes call for a syrupy, usually brown sugar base, in which you steep the herbs in. I was wondering if you could just use wort for the base, or perhaps some sort of party guile. Hey, timely. Then instead of hops, you'd add the ingredients for root beer and follow the normal recipe from there. Would that work? What would the grist be like? <laughs> oh, man. Um, first answer, I've made root beer a couple times, but I did it by using root beer extract. That's the easy way. Gnome for the win. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so I have no idea about the herbs. I will tell you that the idea of using wort for the base it just sounds absolutely disgusting to me. I just I just don't see that working at all. Uh, you know, there's so many flavors in that root beer already that I just can't imagine how they would go with the wort. Not to mention the fact that you would have to somehow ferment that wort out, and you know, I I just don't I just don't think that's a viable idea. Well, so I was going to say here here we go into the into the piece of languages that that we need to understand. I'm not sure if the idea here is to make a worked soda like a Malta, which mm -hmm. is done. Uh, it's a Latin American specialty, but uh, I think to most people who aren't didn't grow up with Malta, Malta tastes a little strange. Um, and so would you be making a, a root beer malt soda? Yeah, I could see you doing it, but to Denny's point, I'd be a little curious as to what the flavor compounds are going to uh, come out tasting like, particularly because you need to get dark color in there for root beer. So the, if you were doing it via like a roast, that would be a little strange, I think. And then if you're going to ferment it, you're basically into making a gruit. And so just look at the world of gruit and see see what you can learn from it. Yeah, um, basically, I think it's a bad idea, but uh, if you're really crazy, give it a try. You always think it's a bad no, idea. No, I don't always think it's a bad idea, but I, that particular thing I think is a bad idea. Okay, next one is for you. It comes from Jeremiah White in North Carolina via Facebook. He says, when using an enzyme addition to brew a very dry beer with a decent mouthfeel, what do you recommend and why? Well, to start with, Jeremiah, I think you have um, confused possible goals. <laughs> yeah. Um, so most of the enzymes that are out there, the, at least I assume we're talking about the amyl glucidases, like the ultra firm from White Labs or the Amlo 300 from BSG. Their primary purpose is to drop out your body and your mouthfeel. Yeah. 
Um, and so th- it's very much in line with the whole sort of brute IPA thing that's happening. But what I do find interesting is that the brute IPAs, at least, they, yeah, they're dry, but they do actually still seem to retain some sort of sweetness or some sort of mouthfeel. So maybe there's a little extra um, protein character in there uh, from some of the uh, from some of the malt, but I don't think so. I think mostly what I'm seeing with the brute IPAs is people. Even using the enzymes, you don't drop out enough character. And the real trick is to make sure you get enough carbonation in there that's nice and fluffy and enough soft hop character that you're not trying to drive a bitterness right through it that's going to make everything taste like water. So for me, if I'm going to do something, and again, I can only assume that this question is motivated by either trying to make a light beer or trying to make a brewed IPA, and I'm going to put a 75% chance on it being a brewed IPA, ultra firm or uh, Amlo 300 BS from BSG, and I just use it in the mash. You know, hold things at like 130 for for the period of time prescribed by the package, and then let it run. Yeah, right. And you know, again, just remember that uh, trying to make a, a really really dry beer and getting mouthfeel out of it are kind of at cross purposes. All right, so you get another one here from uh, Luis Di Stefano in Los Angeles. Luis says. I'm going to make a ginger beer fermented. Some recipes call for the addition of cream of tartar. What does it do? Okay, well, really, all cream of tartar is, it is a acid salt. It's potassium bitartrate, uh, which is, I mean, it's basically, it's a tartaric acid salt. And tartaric acid is really just the leftover compounds that are the acid compounds in a wine fermentation or a grape fermentation. So really what it's doing there is... You dissolve it into the wort, and it turns into acid. So <laughs> that's what the cream of tartar is there for. It's just a, it's just an acid compound. So if you didn't want to use cream of tartar, you could very easily actually go buy tartaric acid or citric acid or malic acid or an acid blend from your local homebrew shop. So is it just for a, a flavoring, or does it? Yeah, it's it's just to add okay. brightness and also well and also possibly drop the pH. Right. So which would, know, which would it, add those kind of two things. Yep. And well, and by dropping the pH also adds stability. Right. And our next question comes from Bill Swarowski and Denny, this okay. is for you. He says, I have sitting at home a pound of crystal rye malt that I have absolutely no idea what to do with. Can you offer any tips on when and where I might u- want to use this malt? I think all rye beer recipes I have come across all use crystal and rye malts separately. Can you kill two birds with one stone using this malt? Say I have a recipe that calls for one pound of rye and one pound of crystal. Will using one pound of crystal rye malt cover me for both pounds being called for? Yeah, well, Bill, you know what? I had the same idea when I encountered crystal rye. Uh, You know, you may know that I make a lot of rye beers. And what I found was it's a lot more like crystal than it is like rye. So I would say, no, it won't necessarily cover both bases for you. If you want just a little touch of rye to your beer and you want to use a crystal, then yeah, it, it's great for that. It'll help bump up the, uh, the rye presence, uh, in a, in a rye beer, but it will really not substitute for rye malt. Like I said, it's a lot more like a crystal than it is a rye. So there we go. Just consider it a bonus <laughs> rye. <laughs> bonus rye indeed. Okay, next one is for Drew from the Lupulin Files via Instagram. I've got a question about adding toasted coconut to an IPA. Should I add during the mash, whirlpool, or during the dry hop? Also wondering if I should spray with star sand before adding. Also, can you talk about adding adjuncts and fruit in the secondary when using carboys to reduce the risk of oxidation? Okay, toasted coconut is a wonderful character. Uh 
dry coconut that thing. <laughs> yeah, right. That's what I do. Uh, I think if you add it to the mash, you're going to trap oils in the mash. I think if you add it to the boil, you're going to boil off some of your wonderful coconut characters. I think if you add it too early in the fermentation, you're going to blow off your wonderful coconut characters. So, yeah, I would either put it into a secondary or put it into the keg. You know, usual sort of rules apply, nylon bag. In terms of sanitation, this is another reason to do it in finished beer. In terms of sanitation, I don't do anything special to sanitize the toasted coconut. I just put it in a bag, toss it in, walk away. Ta-da, done. Now, as for reducing oxidation by adding adjuncts when you're in a carboy, the easy answer is get yourself some CO2, flood it in there uh, with the understanding, of course, that it's not going to be perfect. I would also say, if particularly if you're going to put fruit in, you can be a little bit less circumspect about things because the fruit will kick off active fermentation, which will also help deal with some of the oxidative compounds that are in your carboy. But really, if you're worried about it, Nice, gentle flooding of CO2 into the carboy will at least help reduce the risk of oxidation. Right, and uh, don't worry if you don't have a kegging set up. You can go get one of those uh, little chargers that use the uh, the cartridges and just use that to uh, flood your carboy. works just as well as a full CO2 tank. Okay, one, uh, one last ingredient question here uh, for Denny. This is from Christopher in Oregon, and I figured this was perfect for you because it's all about being cheap <laughs> and the impact of being cheap. And he says, hey, guys, I've got a question that I can't find a solid answer for. Being a tightwad 10-gallon all-grain brewer, I buy my hops by the pound. Example, I find a good deal on Cascade or Galaxy. I will buy a pound and use them over the next three to five months. I store these hops in mason jars, vacuum-packed, and in my keyser at 38 degrees Fahrenheit. I know that a freezer would be better, but the wife has a well-defended DMZ in place. That's funny. So is mine. My question is, why am I so cheap? Wait, strike that. My question is, how big of a flavor slash aroma hit am I taking by not storing them below zero? Any follow-up on the lifespan of hops using the storage method? I always look forward to your podcast and don't mind your adverts. Keep doing what you do. Well, hey, man, I'm glad you don't mind the advertisements because if it wasn't for them, we couldn't keep doing what we do. Okay, how big of a flavor hit are you taking? You know, and the answer is some, but... I can't tell you exactly uh, how much. There's a what they call a hop storage index, and it varies for every hop, from every crop, from every lot, and that determines how fast they're going to deteriorate. Obviously, the warmer they are, the more quickly they're going to deteriorate. 38 isn't all that warm. Below zero would be better. So all I can really tell you is, you know, you're losing some, you may not be losing a lot, and a lot depends on how long you store them also, and the hop storage index for that particular hop. Yeah, it's it's gonna it's definitely going to vary, but I think also at the same time, I mean, you're at 38 degrees, if you're doing vacuum packing in your mason jars, which you are, I mean, you're doing pretty well. Yeah. Uh, remember, people used to brew, brew beers with hops that they stored at room temperature and brown paper bags. not saying that's a good thing. So, no, I'm, I know. I'm saying, you know, in comparison to that, you're doing great. Yes, you're going to take a hit. How much of a hit? Probably uh, probably not as big of one as you as you think. But, I mean, also you're going through the hops in a relatively reasonable clip. So maybe just as you get down the line, don't use those hops to be big yeah. aroma hops. Uh, give, them, give them a whiff first if they smell cheesy or, or uh, you know, kind of dusty or something like that. Forget it, man. Don't ruin your beer. So it's time for a break here, and when we come back, we're going to be taking some questions about packaging, so please stick around. 
Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaca is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaca is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaca you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaca wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Savor some of Yeast's exclusive Belgian strains with the Belgische Zomer private collection this summer. Backed by popular demand, the Forbidden Fruit, Trappist-style blend, and the Canadian-Belgian ale strains encompass the entire spectrum of yeast properties and are distinguished by their coveted ester and phenolic profiles. Take advantage of these strains to brew a full range of Belgian styles, from traditional everyday drinking to the bigger and more complex. The versatility of this collection is perfect for savoring all summer long. These strains are available July through September at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. just about time it's just about time don't you think it's about time we talked about beer okay this is the part where everybody sings beer 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 we're back with some questions about packaging and the first one goes to drew it comes from rich soden via email and rich says I have a question for the podcast about the science of CO2 and temperature when bottling. This comes about based on a discussion with a friend over a beer that didn't get resolved. The beer didn't get resolved or the question? Hmm. Can you reduce the amount of CO2 in solution in a bottled beer by warming it up and then cooling it down? My feeling is that once it's primed and the cap is on, it's a closed system. You warm it up, the CO2 comes out of solution, but then it builds up pressure in the headspace. So as you cool it down, the CO2 that's under pressure will be reabsorbed, right? Right. Bloody well right. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say exactly the same thing. Yeah, the, for the most part, your presumption of your you know, beer pondering question is correct, that uh, a bottle is roughly a closed system. It's not perfectly closed. But it's not it's closed enough that warming the beer up and then cooling it back down is not actually going to lose you any CO2. After all, if that were the case, there would be hundreds of thousands of bottles on beer shelves everywhere that would come off flat. So, yeah, you you are correct. The CO2 will build up in the headspace and at some point in time either reach equilibrium or if, you know, in worst case scenario, you superheat the bottle, the bottle will explode because the CO2 will exceed the maximum threshold of the bottle. Uh, however, it's not coming out of the cap, <laughs> at least not in a great quantity that you're going to uh, be able to recognize. Yeah, of, of course, that those caps do leak a bit over time. But no, in, in general, you are absolutely right with your theory there, Rich. Our next question comes from Michael Massengill, who's asking about jockey boxes. He says, I'm working on putting a jockey box together. I've heard that coils are better than plates and I should never use copper. I've also heard from a plumber friend that he has never had any issues with copper tubing for his jockey box. He has had, over the years, three kegs worth. Is it dangerous? Yeah, you're right. It can be dangerous. And I'm not really going to get into the, are coils better than a plate? Because I really don't know. I haven't uh, used jockey boxes enough to know. 
I, but I do know that copper post-fermentation is a bad thing. Uh, pre-fermentation, great. There are people who uh, maybe even add a bit of copper into their brewing system uh, because it supposedly is like a, a yeast nutrient, does other good things. Uh, you know, traditionally beer kettles were called coppers because that's what they were made out of. But that's because the pH is relatively high at that point. By the time the beer gets fermented, the pH is low and it can dissolve copper into the beer and uh, cause things like copper poisoning. It can interfere with medications. Uh, your friend has done this and he's been fine. Well, that's that's great, man. Uh, I'm very happy for him. More power to him. But I guess uh, my response would be, are you feeling lucky? Do you want your beer to taste like blood? Because this is how you get beer that tastes like blood. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and besides the health effects, it'll make your beer yeah. taste lousy. So just avoid it. Well, Don't do and it. To the other points, the reason why you'll see people talk about using copper, you know, or people wanting to use copper is copper has a much better thermal conductivity than stainless steel does. But the reason that everybody uses stainless steel for their jockey boxes is because, one, it's non-reactive. So it won't add any flavor. And the other one, of course, is that stainless steel is far more durable over time than copper. So even letting beer sit in your line, let alone uh, caustic cleaners or acidic sanitizers, will slowly eat away at the copper. Uh, whereas with stainless steel, not the same problem. So that's why everybody uses stainless. I mean, I suspect if this is like a temporary thing where you want to do like a keg in a fast service situation, like you're going to have a party and you just need to throw together a jockey box at the last minute, you could probably get away with it. But... Still, this is how you get your beer to taste like blood. Yeah, you know, like Drew said, you can you could probably get away with it, but it is not a good idea, and we do not recommend it. Okay, the next question comes in from Keith Scott, and we're going to be hearing more from Keith in an upcoming episode. But one of the questions he had was this. Wow, I just transferred my 21st batch to kegs for the first time. Thanks for the wonderful advice. I found a four-pack of five-gallon corny kegs on homebrewers.com for $169.99. Boy, that's a pretty good price. Granted, these aren't the 10-gallon kegs you mentioned, but I can't seem to find those. I see five, seven, and 15 gallons, so I thought I'd ask you folks, where are these elusive 10-gallon kegs? Boy, that's a good question, huh? In the scrapyard. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, I'm surprised. I've, I don't think I've ever seen a seven-gallon corny keg, but... Yeah, you can find them online. It's They're kind of hard. Uh, I've assembled all of mine basically by Craigslist. And yeah, uh, the unfortunate problem is, for the most part, I think the 10-gallon corny kegs were either in high-service restaurants that needed lots of soda syrup, or they were in uh, dairies and being used as dairy equipment. And unfortunately, I think even back in the day, they were relatively rare. But I have found them online from a couple of sources, and I'll try and dig them up and put them in the show notes. But they usually run somewhere in the 200 to 250 or $300 range for a 10-gallon corny keg. Yeah, and, you know, I got my 10-gallon corny kegs, oh, geez, probably like 18 years ago. Uh, our club found a place where there were hundreds of them for sale, and we picked them up for 20 bucks a piece. So. Wow. I thought I was lucky because I got a couple, I got two of mine for $50 a piece. Yeah, right. Well, like I said, this was a long time ago, and they're not there anymore. So where do you find them, Keith? You you have good luck, I guess. Yeah, you have to keep looking. So there you go. And our final packaging question comes from uh, Jeremy Ford via email. He says, I have a question regarding transporting beer long distance. I'm getting married this September. Mazel tov. So naturally, I want to make all the beer. 
Naturally. I live eight <laughs> hours from where the wedding will be, and I'm curious what I need to conserve when traveling with eight kegs. Don't get pulled over by the cops. Should I add priming sugar to carbonate and transport warm kegs? Will I get off flavors if I lager or cold clash slash clarify and let it warm up to carbonate? If I cold condition and force carbonate the beer and it warms up on the trip, will I lose all carbonation? Anything else I need to consider? What would you do? Okay, well, we're going to start off with what I wouldn't do, and that's uh, prime those kegs and uh, then transport them. Amen. Yeah, really. Remember, priming, uh, one of the reasons we don't like priming kegs is because you end up with a bunch of gunk in the bottom of the keg. And so if you were to prime that keg and then transport it, that gunk would be all through your beer, and uh, you would have to crash it again. And, you know, just don't go there. It's not worth it, man. Will I get off flavors if I lager cold or cold crash, clarify, and then let it warm up to carbonate? No, absolutely not. Um, you know, but again, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to prime. Next question. If I cold condition and force carbonate the beer and it warms up on the trip, will I lose all the carbonation? Not as long as your keg is sealed. There's no place for that carbonation to go. So it's going to stay right in there. Uh, anything else to consider? What would you do? I would force carbonate those kegs, get them as cold as possible before the trip, keep them as cold as possible through the trip without going to great lengths because warming up isn't really going to hurt them, and then just chill them down again once I get there. Yep. Cold crash, gelatin, get everything out of those kegs that you possibly can because uh, the second, or really get everything out of the beer because the second you start moving those kegs around, anything that's settled is going to come right back up in the solution and cause you issues. So do whatever you have to in order to get absolutely wonderfully crystal clear beer into the kegs. Force carbonate. To Danny's point, keep them cold. Uh, I would wrap mine in blankets, for instance, if I was, yep. as I was transporting them. And then the second that you get wherever it is you're going to be, uh, keep them cold again. But yeah and, yeah, and also, since you are going to be force carbonating and moving these over distance, Make sure all your posts and your poppets and your uh, valves are set and shut. That's right. the only way you're going to lose carbonation. Yeah, exactly. Just make sure it's a sealed system. Uh, Drew mentioned uh, using gelatin to clear the beer. I, I don't do that very often, but if, if it was me and I was going to be moving them, I would cold crash them first to get all the gunk uh, settled out. And then either blow all that out or transfer to another keg with just the clear beer on top. So Yeah, I mean, after all, this is for your wedding. You want yeah. to make sure these things present really well. So those are our questions about packaging. We're going to take a break here. And when we come back, Drew will hold forth on recipes. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. It's about to be a lot of me. That's right. <laughs> Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. 
the Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back. It's time to answer some questions about recipes, and fortunately, Drew gets most of these, so uh, I can I can kind of take a nap while it's going on. First one comes from Nick Danks in the UK, and Nick says, I'm thinking of brewing a Pilsner using Pilsner malt and Zotz hops, but was thinking of mixing it up by fermenting with Imperial's A838 Juicy Yeast. Any thoughts? See, and this is why this is your question. Yes, I have thoughts. It sounds like a great idea. <laughs> okay. No, no, but seriously, I I, I, I don't see Pilsner, huh? Yeah, I don't see anything wrong with it. I, I'm, I'll be curious to see how the noble hops, those Zotz hops, will interact with a juicy yeast and and that sort of hazy type idea. Um, because again, I don't think you're going to get any inherent juicy characters out of the yeast, right? I mean, that's just all. You know, whether or not it's going to throw the biotransformation type stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're going to be fine doing that. You'll probably actually end up being pretty much like, you know, hey, a classic Keller beer, if anything else. Yeah, and I, I know nothing about that yeast, so I don't know if there's any reason to expect juicy character from it or not. I You know, I, I think that I would expect it to since they call it a juicy yeast, but, you know, who knows? No, not, but I think it's a fine idea. I think, uh, like I said, you're going to end up with something that's halfway between an American blonde and a German Keller beer. If you've used that A38 juicy yeast, give us a shout and let us know if the yeast is really juicy or not. You know, it's like when you open that pack, does it smell juicy? <laughs> Boy. All righty. Here's the next one coming from David O'Neill. He says, based upon your history of devising recipes based upon food and drink and your love of gin, I'm hoping you might be intrigued enough to help me with a project. I want to create a beer recipe inspired by the classic Negroni cocktail, and I'm having a hard time getting started. As I'm sure you know, the drink is equal parts gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth, and generally garnished with an orange slice or peel. I'd love to capture the following attributes of the cocktail in the beer version. The bright red color, viscous, round, and sweet, bitter in that Italian Amaro way, citrus from the orange, juniper, and botanicals from the gin. Although I want these qualities to carry forward to the finished beer, I also want the finished beer to be drinkable, yeah, and still remind folks of beer first and foremost. 
I've been wrestling with the following questions. Which base beer style to start with? Do I make use of a bitter beer like an IPA as the base, or do I achieve all my bitterness from herbs and barks along the lines of Campari? Relatedly, do I add Campari directly to the fermenter, or do I attempt to use the same flavorings, Chinoto, Cascaria, etc., Campari is rumored to use? If the latter, how on earth do I figure out how much to use? How do I achieve the bright ruby red color, with grains or with the cochineal beetles that Campari used to use? How do I achieve the gin component in the beer? Add juniper to the boil, the fermenter, orange peel in the fermenter, or both? In the event this idea intrigues you, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you'd approach it. This doesn't intrigue me. This fascinates me. Uh, <laughs> to, to start with, yeah, Negroni is a classic cocktail. It's one of my favorites. Uh, the riff on the Americano cocktail, uh, just with gin instead of soda water. And I, I would disagree. I think my favorite uh, version of Negroni actually uses two ounces of gin and one and a half of vermouth and Campari. So it's very distinctive, uh, the, the Campari aspect of this. So... First things first, I wouldn't try and use an IPA as your base. I would try and get most of your bitterness from herbal additions uh, because to me, there's a very distinct difference between the two. Although I would actually still have some hops in here because beer. Uh, let's start with the base style. To me, I think you want to have you want to have something that has that sweet caramelly type of note that you get from the the sweet vermouth. So for me, I would almost go for like an ESB type of beer, you know, and remember, again, ESBs aren't necessarily super bitter from the hops, but I would go for like a, like maybe an amped up ESB or, or an English strong ale type idea and get your red color. I would say actually try and play around with something like the Red X or the Sacra 50 from Great Western. I think you can get that or maybe even just do the Scottish trick and just a little bit of uh, roasted barley. And that will get you into a bright red area. It won't get you to Campari red. Campari red is eerily unnatural. <laughs> yeah, well, and you're going to have to use something unnatural to get it if you want that color. Yeah. So if you if you do really want that Campari color, then don't do the strong ale. Do kind of a strong blonde ale. Uh, have some uh, oats in there or something like that. Of course, you know I'm going to say oats because I love them. And then use Campari itself to actually get the color, or you know, use a use a food safe uh, uh, food coloring, and it, that's if you want the really bright poppy red. If you want something that's more beery red, but you want bright beery red, then I would go and try and use Red X uh, on top of a uh, sort of a strong ale base, herbs and whatnot. That's exactly how I would go and get your bitterness. I would do something along the lines of you know, just look at some Groot recipes online. Most of the time, the Groot recipes call for 15, 20-minute boil additions. And then uh, Campari is a nice thing. You can add it, but uh, if you'll have to adjust how much bittering herbs you use. And I would also make sure that your hop choices that you're going to use for this are herbal in nature. So don't, don't go reaching for your mosaics here. And then orange peel, I would actually put the orange peel in at Whirlpool. Uh, juniper also at Whirlpool, just to get that Jenny uh, note in there. Um, you can, you can buy juniper berries uh, relatively cheap. I would use a clean yeast cause this is not going to be a yeasty thing. Although if you wanted to there, you can make an argument or play for some sort of a Belgian strain that gives you some lower earth characters and maybe actually, Ooh, you know, actually why yeast right now has the Canadian Belgian Unibrew yeast, which gives some really nice fruity notes along with the spice. And that would actually play very well in that too. So just to recap, 
strong ale with red X oats to get you your, your viscousness. Yes. Use, uh, herbal hops. Also use, uh, the herbs that you can find that, you know, that are in Campari. Those go in as a, a boil edition. So say like 20 minutes, uh, or 10 minutes, depending these days, I think I'd probably do 10 minutes. Citrus peels, absolutely, and in the in the boil, but as a whirlpool addition, effectively. Same thing with the juniper. While you're while you're chilling down, you're going to get plenty of uh, extract, and then also make sure. I, I would say carbonation wise, I would just kind of keep it in that sort of medium realm, and boom, Bob Drunkle. I think you'd you'd have it, and of course, me being me, I would say that you'd help. You also have to serve it with an orange peel, you know, at least for show. Why not just put gin and Campari in it? Well, you can, but. I don't know. That feels like cheating and also more expensive. I, 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 <laughs> to me, it, it feels like, like easier and probably more accurate than trying to guess how much juniper berry to put in and how much Campari components to put in. But, you know, that's me. I like the easy way out. Yeah. And, and, and for me, the challenge of a recipe like this is the recreation, but, you know, not... Yeah, I guess not taking the easy way. So yeah, for me, I would, I would, I would pursue that path. But yeah, if you are, if you do want to do gin and Campari, then do a strong blonde beer and use that so that you can get the most pop out of the color. I mean, that that would be my my preference to approach it. But well, hey, I get to answer one now, huh? Yeah, you do. I get a small break here. All right, so our next question comes from uh, Will Albert in Atlanta, and he says, "My question has to do with mouthfeel and lower ABV in session beers." I've listened to your podcast with Jennifer Talley and also purchased and read her book when it came out around Christmas. However, I still have questions, don't we all? I am brewing three-gallon batches in order to brew more often and almost always use the no-sparge method. I've recently brewed two saisons, two lagers, a bitter, and two pale ales, all with a finishing gravity under 5.2 ABV. I use distilled water and make water adjustments including pH using brewing water. On all beers except the bitter, I've selected the yellow dry profile. The bitter, I used the amber balanced profile. To my palate, they all seem to taste a little thin in mouthfeel to varying degrees. With the saisons and one lager, I mashed at 148 degrees Fahrenheit, so I could expect the beers being a bit thin. However, with one lager, bitter, and pale ales, I used mash temperatures of 152 to 155 degrees Fahrenheit. Is the goal of having a beer finish dry and still have some mouthfeel counterproductive? Should I be mashing warm since most of these beers were almost 100% base malts? Should I use a lower attenuating yeast to leave a few more gravity points? I don't use dextrin malts since they're basically just like crystal malts. Could this help? Maybe switch the water profile to balanced or malty and use a higher attenuating yeast. As you can see, I'm generally confused on what to try next. My recipes are fairly normal and modeled after recipes I find in popular homebrewing books. I think they have mostly turned out well, just lacking a little something I think is mouthfeel. I know without tasting my beers, it can be hard to give feedback on this issue. What do you think? Uh, okay, so um, yeah, kind of, sometimes uh, dry and a full mouthfeel can be at odds with each other. Uh, let's, I guess we kind of need to define dry to start with. Um, you seem to be approaching it through water adjustments, which would have like a high sulfate level. Uh, that would definitely uh, make it drier. Um, you also seem to be dealing with like low mash temperatures and, you know, uh, that would say maybe give you a lower FG and a perception of dryness also, but they're, they're really two different things. Uh, one thing I would ask you is what kind of malt you're using, 
because uh, my discovery the last few years has been that mash temp just does not make as much difference as it used to because there's so much diastatic power in the malts that they're all going to pretty much go through a heavy conversion. And uh, so mash temp is just not going to make a lot of difference. So I would say if you want to experiment with that, Really kick your mash temp up. Go for 158, 160, 162, something like that. See what happens. Um, yeah, uh, you could try a different water profile. Uh, try like a, a yellow full or something like that. But, you know, I, I guess it, it just kind of depends on what you're going for. And you have some great questions here, but I don't really see any place where you've stated what your goal is. Whether you, I mean, I guess I'm assuming you want these to be both dry and have a full mouthfeel. Yeah, that could be that could be tough. Uh, a lower attenuating yeast, yeah, maybe, but that's a really difficult way to uh, to, to control it. You, you say I don't use dextrin malts since they're basically just light crystal malts, and it's like, yeah, so what? Why would that keep you from using them? Uh, I would say that if you want more mouthfeel. This is a perfect place to put those in there. Start with like a quarter pound of, of like a carapils or something like that. Mash it, oh, say 150, and then go for a dry water profile. That might get you into the ballpark. There's, there's just so much here in terms of possibilities, and it really depends on exactly what your goal is. You got any ideas about it? Yeah, I would say... You know, maybe maybe actually do explore using some more dexterous malts because I I think you're missing out on something by not doing that. Um, and I say this as a guy who most of my beers are almost all pilsner or pale malt. So I think if you're if you're really worried about the 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 body or the mouthfeel that you're getting, um, make that change first because I don't think mass temperature is going to make a make a bit of a difference. And I think the difference between your yellow bitter and your uh, balanced is also probably not going to make a big enough difference that you're going to say, oh, hey, you know, that's that, that feels so thin now. Yeah, all those things are going to make small differences. So you may need to try a few things together. I would I would go with uh, starting with some carapils in your recipes, but using a dry water profile and see where that gets you and then go from there. Indeed. Indeed. Next one comes from Mike Reynoldson, who says, I'm using Brewtoad software, and I noticed when I put lactose sugar in the recipe, it ups the OG fairly significantly, but the FG might only increase by 0.001. Is this a problem with their equation? I've noticed it with some other free calculators as well. FG would increase by approximately, if not exactly, the same as OG with lactose sugar, correct? <laughs> correct. Okay, buddy. Correct. And so I actually reached out just to double check. You are right. And I reached out to Brad Smith, the author of Beersmith, and just to say, hey, you know, I know Brutoad's not yours, but does Beersmith do this properly? So when I talked to Brad Smith about this and asked him what Beersmith does, he says that if you have the lactose in the recipe as a fermentable and it, the ingredient itself is set with a little checkbox that says not fermentable, if you open up the ingredient, there's a little checkbox that says not fermentable and you have that, then Beersmith will actually do the calculation correctly and you know adjust the final gravity based on the non-fermentables in there. So one of the problems that he's noticed is that people who are using older versions of Beersmith or having old recipes that they've carried along with Beersmith, 
they'll still carry that as a fermentable because it was only fixed in later editions. And so you actually have to go in and click and manually adjust the recipe ingredient itself. And then it should carry forward and be uh, non-fermentable. So yes, in this particular case, the lactose should be impacting the final gravity as well. So basically then uh, he should stop using Brewtoad and start using Beersmith? Or just, you know, remember that it doesn't calculate it correctly and go forth. And not worry about it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, ex- exactly. Because who cares what the software tells you your FG is going to be? Because it's going to be what it's going to be, right? Exactly. Okay. Next question comes in from Robert Dexter in Los Angeles. Uh, must be just right around the corner from you, huh? Oh, yeah. No, I see him every month. Robert says, I have a couple questions for you. I want to brew a New England IPA. First time. Question is about dry hopping and time in the fermenter. From what I've read, I was planning to dry hop about three days into fermentation with a couple days left. That's for the biotransformation. The question is, should I put all of my dry hops in at that point or just do some of the dry hops at that point and do the rest of them later? Do I leave in the previous dry hops if I add a second round or should I pull the first ones out? I normally just dump them loose into my fermenter. Usually when I brew, I leave the beer in the fermenter for about two weeks after fermentation is done and then keg. But this will have hops in it while fermenting. Also, it's a different style of beer. Maybe it's best not to sit so long. How long would you suggest I let it sit after either the initial dry hopping or if I add a second dry hopping, how long after that would I keg? Would you recommend using London Ale 3, why use 1318, for the yeast? Lots of questions there, bud. Yep, lots of questions. So, yes, on the yeast. Uh, 1318 is one of my favorites for this. I, I have to laugh. I, I've been told now by a couple of homebrew stores that they used to never be able to sell 1318, but over the last two <laughs> years, it's become the most popular strain they carry. Um, so, yes, 1318 is great for this. As for your questions about dry hopping, I wouldn't put all the dry hops in that biotransformation uh, period, you know, in the active fermentation. Uh, you've got the timing about right there, but what I would actually do is go and add a, another set of hops. Cause remember the whole thing with the hazy IPA is hops, 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 hops. So as many hop additions as you can uh, reasonably afford and cram into a, a beer carboy and still get beer out of. And so yeah, three days in fermentation, add one dose, then after fermentation is done, then I would actually rack and go into a keg and add another set of hops. And usually about seven days is, seems to be about the most optimum extract time that people talk about. You see some people talk about, hey, you know, you get all your extract after three days. Old school, you know, hey, leave it there for two weeks to a month. Even older school, like Danny and I do a lot, just leave the damn hops in the keg and go and drink yeah, it. exactly. Uh, and you have dry hopping time until uh, until that's done. So, yeah, I would do at least two doses of hops, one with the biotransformation and then the other one in as a sort of a cleaner dry hop that is going to drop a lot of oils. Yeah. I mean, from my lack of experience with New England IPA, that's exactly what I'd suggest also. Yep. So easy peasy in the in in with one dose, use that 1318, let it do its magic and then uh, cram in some more hops at a later date. And yeah, I just put them in the keg. Cool. All right, it's time for another break here, and when we get back, we're going to be talking about techniques and hopefully answering some questions about that. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. 
Their eighth-generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. covered ingredients we've covered recipes we've covered some processy type things and packaging and now now it's time to get technical and talk some techniques so the first question actually goes to denny and it comes from chris bigger in montreal who emailed us to say when i recently got back into home brewing i decided to go straight to all grain after lots of research i decided on brewing a bag and because i want to brew often i got four one gallon fermenters now for my problem I can never hit my estimated original gravity. It's always off by 10 plus points. I made a Saison recipe in Beersmith, and I've brewed it four times now to work on technique. I should be getting 1051. The first time, I got 1034, and lately, I'm getting 1040. I mash at 148 to 150 every time, and tried mashing for 60 minutes up to two hours. I know I can increase my base grain or use DME, but I'd really like to know what I could be doing wrong, or is a small batch brewing a bag just that hard to nail? My beersmith volumes are all bang on, and when I brew a kit or with extract, I'm fine. Also, I literally stand there the entire time during the mash and baby the temperature. I buy fresh grain and mill the hell out of it, and I squeeze the bag relentlessly like it owes me gravity points. It's so frustrating. Hope you can help me figure this out. Well, I hope we can too, man. Um, my first thought is the most obvious one, and it's like, have you figured out what your average efficiency for your system is? And adjusted the recipes to it. Because if you're like looking at a recipe that is made for 75 or 80% efficiency and you're getting 60%, then you're going to be off every time. So obviously the very, very first thing to do is sit down with a pencil and a piece of paper or your favorite calculator or whatever you like and figure out what kind of efficiency you're getting out of your uh, your beer. And just real quickly, for those of you who don't know how to do it, it's pretty simple. The best way to do it is assume that uh, the average maximum gravity points for your grain at 100% uh, efficiency is 36, right? So then you multiply that by the number of pounds of grain that you're using to get the maximum number of gravity points you could get out of that particular recipe. For instance, if you're using 10 pounds of grain at 100% efficiency, you would get 360 gravity points. If you're making, say, a, a five-gallon batch, you would divide that 360 by five and come up with about, what, like 70-something, and that would be the gravity for 100% efficiency. Okay, so actually what you need to do then is uh, take a look at how many gravity points you're getting out of a recipe and figure out where that stands in relation to what the theoretical maximum could be. Find out what efficiency of your system is and plug that into the recipe and adjust the recipe to deal with that. 
that's where I would start. I don't see any other obvious red flags in what you're doing. So start by making sure that your recipes are adjusted for the efficiency you actually get and uh, let us know how that works for you. Well, and most importantly, let us know what the efficiency is that you think you're supposed to be getting. Like, what is Beersmith actually set to? And I mean, it's possible that you could be radically off. I don't know. Like, I haven't done a lot of one gallon size brew in a bag, so I'm, I'm not certain about efficiency impacts of that, but I can't imagine it being that bad. I will also say there's literally no reason for you to be standing over a mash for two hours adjusting the temperature. So. No, I mean, you know, you know what? Um, when I was uh, working on my 2020 uh, brew for the, the book, 20-minute uh, mash, 20-minute boil, um, I was getting 75% efficiency out of that. So it's it's definitely possible, but you just have to know what you're really getting and then adjust for it. There you go. Next question. Okay. Next question is for Drew. It comes from Tony Menzel of Milwaukee. He says, does beer need to be chilled after adding gelatin for fining, or can this be done at room temperature? I think Shakespeare said it best in Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 3, Line 87, when Hamlet says, no. <laughs> I thought maybe Hamlet said, use lime jello. <laughs> no, I'm not even touching that. So, <laughs> no, it, you can you can use gelatin at room temperature for fining. Uh, but I will say that it is far more effective to combine gelatin with also cold crashing. Uh, you'll you'll get a, a far superior result out of it in a much shorter period of time. But at the very least, it does need to be done at, uh, at least in my mind, at least at fermentation temperatures. So don't go be sticking your carboy in an 80 degree room and expecting it to work. All right. Having dispensed with the gelatin and fining. It's time to move on to our next question. Uh, hopefully this one's also a short one. This one comes from Instagram from Smells of Hot Dogs, a.k.a. our good friend Annie Johnson. And Annie says, I'd like to recreate a kettle sour at home. How am I going to do that? Well, it's easy. You make a kettle sour. There you go. Done. <laughs> oh, Annie. Yeah, um... Throw, throw some yogurt in, throw some probiotic pills, uh, leave it open overnight so that your puppy can get into it. Uh, any of those things should work. Yeah. Uh, puppy kettle sour, huh? Yep. Good Lord. Reminds me of the Simpsons. Needs more tick. <laughs> okay. And then Mike Reynoldson asked us via email, I just got done listening to the newest brew files. What would be the, and in this particular case, he's talking about the Party Gal episode that was from last week. What would the hurdles be to doing this with brew in a bag? My assumption would be that you wouldn't want to squeeze the first running, just let it drip till it mostly stops, and do a dunk sparge and then squeeze like normal, assuming you are the type that squeezes. Anything wrong with this approach or any problems you would foresee or know of already with brew in a bag party gals? You know, I, yeah, if you're going to do it, I would say that would probably be the way to do it. My only worry would be, can you get enough grain into the bag to actually do a party guile? Uh, you recall we discussed this in the Brew Files episode that uh, if you don't have a really, really high original gravity uh, on your first beer, then there's not going to be enough left to really make a second beer. So if you can, you know, if you can squeeze enough grain into your bag, then I think that probably your technique would work as well as anything else yeah it makes sense to me i mean really all you're doing is just different batch sparges yeah exactly exactly colby hinkson has a question for drew he says i have a question about starting up a very small barrel 
I was recently gifted an unused medium char American oak barrel, only 10 liters. I plan on filling it for the first time next weekend, but was curious what your thoughts were on fermentation in the barrel. Do I primary ferment in the barrel, or do I primary ferment in a carboy and then transfer to the barrel for secondary? Is there ever a point where primary in the barrel is a good option? I plan on doing a few clean beers through the barrel before I switch to a sour barrel. Yes. Do your primary fermentation in your carboy first. Age in the barrel. At least for the first few rounds or first few uses of the barrel, because right now a 10-liter barrel is going to give you an incredible oak extract in a hurry. Uh, in fact, so fast that I don't even think you'd be able to get primary fermentation done by the time that you'd be over-oaked. So totally do your primary fermentation as you normally do, then do your aging in the barrel, and keep a very close eye on it, because like I said, those first few batches that you're going to run through are totally going to you know become oak monsters in a hurry. Now, as for would I ever primary in a barrel... Sure, once you got the barrel down to the point where it's neutral and it's not imparting a lot of wood character, totally. Uh, you kind of make like a Firestone Walker, their double barrel ale that they used to do, you know, where they do the, you know, half the beer, or actually I think it's 40% of the beer aged in oak barrels, or sorry, not aged in oak barrels, fermented in oak barrels, and then mixed with the rest of the stuff that's produced in stainless. So yeah, totally. But I would, I would do it in your particular case with that small of a barrel. I would do primary somewhere else, secondary age. And then only do the primary once you've extracted most of the woody goodness. Yeah, right. Because otherwise, uh, that beer is going to be so oaky, you can build a house with it. And then our next question comes from Mark Connors in Australia, who emailed us to say, I've recently purchased a pressurized fermenter and spoonding valve, which I've had great success with. The problem that I've run into is when you ferment under pressure to 5 or 10 PSI and want to bottle condition some of the beer, how do you measure the dissolved CO2 in solution? I'm looking to get all the benefits of reduced esters and off flavors from the pressure and also have a stable bottle that can age for long periods of time. I normally keg, but I've made a few beers that I want to age and put into comps in the future. Thanks for any helpful advice. By the way, it'll be great to see you at the Australian National Homebrew Conference in October. Ooh, and it'll be great to be there too. Well, you know what? My first, uh, my first inclination is to say you can't get there from here. Um, I'm, I've been racking my brain trying to figure out how you could do this. There's obviously no way to measure the dissolved CO2 without going out and buying some uh, expensive instrumentation. I guess, I guess you could guess. I would say that if you're really, really set on doing this, what you would want to do is, uh, grab some beer before it's fermented all the way out. This is like what they did in the bad old days, um, right? Because what you're doing in, in your fermenter is letting the uh, beer that hasn't finished fermenting build up pressure. And you would need to do the same thing in the bottle also. So I would take some of that beer a few days before it's uh, done fermenting, Bottle that and let it finish fermenting in the bottles so that basically you're, you're bottle spending. Uh, I would put those bottles into a heavy box and put them far away from any inhabited areas so that when they turn into little bombs, uh, you'll have less chance of injuring anyone. Yeah, put them in the corner of the shed and pray that nobody uh, wanders in. Yeah, right. But I don't, I don't think you can finish letting the beer completely carbonate in the keg and then bottle it from that and keep the carbonation. I think you're going to actually have to do the bottle spending 
And it, there's a reason people stopped doing that, uh, you know, 75, 80 years ago. It's, it's a very dangerous thing to do. But what's life without a little danger? Uh, a life without a little danger is a longer life. Oh, that's boring. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? When you're my age, you won't think that. Okay, the next one is for you, and it comes from Corey Munson in Minneapolis. Corey says, I've heard quite a few homebrewers say that they use hot water from their tap to help speed up their brew day, even the brewlosophy short and shoddy on occasion. Obviously, bringing your mash sparge water up to temperature can take a while, but my concern is with the quality of the water. Hot tap water is coming from your home's hot water heater, and who really knows how much corrosion and or deposition byproducts could make their way into your brewing water. Seems like there's a fair amount of info floating around that recommends you not even cook or make hot drinks with hot tap water. Is saving a few minutes getting your water up to mash sparge temp really worth it? See my previous quote from Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, I, I don't recommend... Uh, doing this with hot tap water if you've ever actually drunk any or hot tap water it doesn't taste right so no take the take the few extra minutes you know get get your heat up the way that you know that you know you should and i mean actually what i've started doing is now now that i got my house wired with all these uh amazon devices in here i actually have an electrical socket in the brewery that i'll i'll put i'll plug the an immersion heater into it put that into my hlt and then I'll set it to actually start heating the water before I wake up in the morning via the wonderful world of Amazon. So just, I would, I would much rather do something like that than try and say, Oh, Hey, you know, look, I'm going to, I'm going to use this hot water, hot water, uh, heater water. And the one thing I have seen is I've seen a number of breweries out there, including the brewery down in uh, Placentia where they went in kind of an opposite way where they actually replace their HLT with hot water heaters, but they're the instant hot water heaters and designed for commercial use. And boy, do they baby those things and make sure that they're nice and clean and the water coming out of them is good. If you're doing that, sure. But from a hot water heater tank, no. Yeah, I would say that too. Uh, I know that there are people who do, uh, and I've heard people talk about uh, specific kinds of uh, water heaters that would be okay for that, especially if yours is brand new, it might be okay for that. But why would you want to take that chance to just save a few minutes? It just isn't worth it. Uh, you know, I use my grandfather a lot, and I can set that to have a delayed start. Same thing with the mash and boil that I use, stuff like that. That's great, but if you don't have one of those, I would say just don't don't go there. I mean, I guess if you really are set on using water from your water heater, the first thing I'd want to do is taste it. And the second thing I want to do is send it off for an analysis and make sure it's all okay. If both of those pass, then I'm not going to have as many uh, negative things to say about doing it. But in general, don't go there. A real simple experiment to do is open up your hot water tap, let it flow for, you know, a good three, four minutes, right? You know, so you're getting... Fresh water pulled straight from the tank and everything's cleared out of the line. Put that into a cup and let it cool down and then drink it. Compare that to a, a glass of water from the cold faucet. You know, run the exact same way. Let it run three or four minutes to, to flush everything. And then pour yourself a glass of cold water. And then taste the two of them together. And uh, trust me, you'll spot a difference. <laughs> yeah, I really think so too. Okay, it's time for us to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll be finishing up with some miscellaneous questions. So stick around and get miscellaneous with us. 
When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Time for our last set of questions, and well, these questions are well, rather miscellaneous. <laughs> They're everything. Yeah, so a uh, little, uh, little grab bag of questions here to end the episode with. And the first one uh, goes to you, Denny. It's from uh, Kwai Puna in Hawaii, who says via Facebook, "How can we increase and diversify participation in the hobby?" <laughs> You know, this is this is not a simple question to answer. Uh, the AHA has an entire committee uh, committed to diversification, and I guess that maybe that's uh, that's one way to get it all started is uh, looking at who's brewing now, who could be brewing, and what it would take to get them brewing. I, which is a pretty darn obvious answer, huh? I think that the best way to increase diversification is to let people know what a fun hobby this is and spread that gospel and let them let them come to it. You're obviously not going to be able to force them into it. Uh, there are a lot of women who feel like, oh, brewing is like a guy's game. Uh, you can point out how many women are involved in home brewing uh, in both Homebrew All-Stars and our new book, uh, Simple Homebrewing. We have... Uh, quite a few women that we talk about who homebrew just let people know that it's for everybody it's fun and give it a try have people over to brew with you don't take it as a white male thing a guy with a, a pot belly and a beard because there are a lot of homebrewers who don't look like that and homebrewing is for everybody yeah this goes back to something i've i've said in the past where i think one of the biggest problems for homebrewing is that because we are such a you know white nerdy dude hobby, at least in terms of the people who are in homebrew clubs and whatnot. The biggest problem I think that we have as brewers is to make everything welcoming. One of the things we never think about is as us, you know, we're just, we're sitting there thinking, Hey, you know, I, I, I welcome everybody. Everybody's welcome to come have a beer with me. But the problem is whenever you jump into different communities and, and different mixes of people, it gets a little bit hard, you know, particularly if you feel like you're the odd person out. So, I would say a lot of homebrew clubs, you know, particular uh, homebrewers, you, you really kind of need to focus on on actually being very welcoming. You know, so I think if we can do that, I think there's good chances. One of the things I saw recently that was absolutely fascinating was there was a thread on Reddit that talked about, hey, you know, yeah, who here brews, you know, who's a woman? And what was really interesting to me was to see the number of people who 
popped into the thread and basically said things like, yeah, I brew, but I kind of lurk. You know, they don't talk about a lot on, online. They don't go to club meetings. And there were a lot of women there that were there saying, yeah, I, I brew. I just don't I just don't hang out with the, the community. So there you go. Yeah. So what, basically what you're saying is maybe the diversity is greater than we realize right now. I think it, I think it is, but I think what it what we really want to do for the health of the hobby and everything else is increase the visibility of that. And so I know that's some of the efforts that the HA committee is working on right now. And if you want to get involved with that, you can just go to the Homebrewers Association website and look up the Diversity and Inclusivity Committee, and they'll be able to you know tell you what they're doing and where they need help. Yeah, exactly. Uh, remember, uh, all of the governing committee subcommittees are open to people who want to volunteer to help out. So uh, if you have some ideas, uh, go to uh, homebrewersassociation.org, take a look at the governing committee section. If there's a subcommittee there that's working on an issue that you're interested in, volunteer to help. We would always appreciate your help. Next question is for Drew from Mark Costa in Illinois. Mark says, this is uncharted territory for me. No, no, no. Illinois is not uncharted. There are maps. I've seen them. I placed second in the best of show round this past weekend at a competition in normal Illinois called For What It's Worth. Since I placed second, there were a few brewery sponsors that selected the top best of show winners for a ramp-up batch. They contacted me to brew my recipe with them. My question is, what exactly is a ramp-up batch, and are there any legalities associated with it? For instance, my rights to the recipe, share of some of the profit, or are these things up to the brewer? They are totally up to the brewer, but when you say ramp-up batch, I'm going to assume that's just a fancy way of saying a pilot batch. In reality, remember, recipes can't be you know trademarked or controlled, so if you know the recipe, you know, you know the recipe, and there's nothing you can do to protect it. If I go find Coca-Cola's secret formula, I can totally go make Coca-Cola. I just can't call it Coca-Cola. Um, so in this particular case... For the most part, the way breweries work this is it's just kind of a one-off fun thing, right? You know, you get to go in, you get to brew, they get to sell your beer. No, you normally don't see any profits from it. Normally what you get is, hey, you want some free beer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know if you've had any of your recipes brewed commercially. I, yeah. I have. Um, there has never been an offer of anything. Nope. <laughs> You you obviously keep all the rights to it because there aren't any rights in the first place. Uh, no one has ever offered to share any profit with me, although I do have a friend, uh, the guy you see on the bottle of Rogue's Hazelnut Brown, and the rumor is that he gets like a slight royalty. That's the only time I've ever, ever heard of anything like that. And yes, it's strictly up to the brewer. There are no legalities to it or anything like that. Uh, and you shouldn't really expect anything, and then you'll be thrilled with whatever you get. Yeah, and if somebody's going to make you go sign paperwork, that's when I would start to raise an eyebrow. No, I mean, of course, there's always uh, potential issues down the line where, you know, somebody, a brewery decides, oh, hey, you know, that that batch of Drew Saison that we did sold really well. We should do that again, and next thing you know, it becomes a, a flagship, and then that starts to get a little weird, but, you know, still... Nothing, unless nothing you've defined something, yeah. Unless you've defined something in advance, then I know when Rogue was brewing my rye IPA recipe, I could go there with like corny kegs and get them filled up for free and free food when I went to the pub, stuff like that. Um, but you know, have no expectations, and then everything will be a pleasant surprise. Yep, it certainly will. And like I said, most likely you're going to get some free beer. Yeah, and who doesn't love free beer? Right. 
Okay, and next next question comes from Mike Karnowski of North Carolina and of Zebulon Ales. And he's asked us via Facebook, does drinking beer with a high mineral content increase my chances of kidney stones? And you know what? I did a little research on this because I don't even play a doctor on TV. And yes, it can increase it. But how much it can increase it depends on the level of minerals in the beer, how much of it you drink, and other things in your diet, too. Now, most kidney stones come about uh, when calcium and oxalate stick together uh, when your kidneys make urine. Oxalate is a chemical that's in a lot of, like, healthy foods like spinach, rhubarb, grits, uh, stuff like that. So a high level of oxalate can increase your risk of kidney stones, and there is oxalate in beer. The interesting thing is, though, that if you are eating foods that are high in calcium, like milk, or let's face it, there's calcium in beer, that causes the oxalate and calcium to bind together in your gut rather than in your kidneys and actually helps prevent the formation of kidney stones. So, you know, yeah, maybe beer can increase your risk of getting kidney stones, but it might also uh, increase the possibility of not getting kidney stones. So all in all, I would say don't worry about it too much and always drink moderately. Or drink excessively. Wait, no, that's not the end of the show. No. <laughs> no, but yeah, it, it, beer is good for you in, in moderation, like many other things, including moderation. Yeah, that's right. Right. Moderation and moderation. Next question comes from Chris Heron in the UK, who says, like Denny, I am a grandfather user. However, life and having my first child has gotten in the way of my brewing over the past year. Now she's a bit more settled. I'd like to get back to brewing in my garage. I've checked my equipment and the grandfather. Basket and fittings are all still in good condition. My concern is with the counterflow chiller. It was cleaned with PBW before storing, but with the long-term storage in the garage, I'm concerned about the formation of vertigree on the inside surface. Am I overthinking this, or should I just do an acid wash? I've heard star sand is good for this, and water rinse, just to be sure. Hmm, okay, so obviously you have info that I don't, because you're implying that the inside of the chiller there is copper, um, and if that's the case, then yeah, verdigree could be a factor. Um, I, I, th I would say that an acid wash couldn't hurt. Uh, again, I'm not a chemist here, you know, so all I'm going to do is just kind of guess it and answer here. So I would say, yeah, maybe uh, fill that up with some star sand, uh, diluted star sand. I don't think I'd put uh, full strength onto copper. Let it sit for maybe an hour or so. I wouldn't go any longer than that, uh, which kind of goes back to the question about uh, copper coils in a jockey box. Mm-hmm. And, and see what happens. And then I would uh, rinse it very thoroughly, run some water through it, and taste it and see what you think. Yeah, and for the listeners out there who don't know what verdigree is, verdigree is that greenish discoloration and kind of a chemical compound that gets formed on copper um, with the oxygen exposure and water and all that. So... I would, I would agree. I mean, actually, I mean, look, I mean, when it, whenever I use my counterflow chiller, I clean it, you know, you give it PBW or Craftmeister alkaline brewery wash, uh, rinse, then rinse it with water and then do an acid rinse on it with star sand or sandy clean in my case, and then, you know, use it there. And then afterwards I do the exact same thing, right? A hot water flush and then, and clean it out. And then I blow it out with CO2 so that all the moisture is gone. But yeah, in this particular case, I would say the only other addition I would make to Denny's uh, protocol there is I would actually probably just go ahead and put 
a star sand solution in your grain father and pump it continuously through the counterflow chiller back you know, through the counterflow chiller back into the grain father, set up a recirculation loop and run that for a period of time. Cause I think having it recirculate will actually do you better than just letting it sit in the line. Yeah. yeah Plus it will yeah, also, pro- it will also clean out the pump too. Yeah. The, the motion could be, uh, could be very good. Uh, and to tell you the truth, I generally try to avoid using counterflow chillers. Um, I don't know if you've heard my method, but while I mash in the, in the grandfather, I then pump over to a converted keg kettle for boiling and chilling. Uh, that gives me uh, the ability to use my uh, jaded hydra chiller on it, which I just love. So I, I have always had a, a bit of an issue with counterflow chillers. And even though the grandfather counterflow is pretty darn effective, if I can avoid using it, I will. Or you could just do what I do if you're using a grandfather. And I bought a new uh, Sila chiller from Jaded that's designed for grandfathers and other systems like the mash and boil and whatnot. Works pretty well right. as you go right, bigger. Yeah, but not not everybody wants to be like us and go out of their way to use extra stuff with the grandfather. So in that case, uh, Chris, I would certainly try your method and you know, let us know how it works for you, actually. Yeah. And like I said, when, whenever I use a counterflow chiller, I'm obsessive about it. So because the number one place that breweries will get infections is in their counterflow chain, uh, heat exchangers. So Yeah, and, and because I'm not obsessive, I try and avoid using one. <laughs> you're, well, you're so just not we're, da- about we're that. down to the last final question here and it's uh, an interesting one huh mm-hmm. and this one comes from uh, jay woods in mesa arizona who says gentlemen not really a technical question here but i'd still like to know what is your favorite commercial beer to replicate in your home brewery denny hey, man he called us gentlemen i guess we're gonna have to answer this one um I am not a fan of cloning beers. Uh, I don't really believe that most of the time you can actually clone a beer. It, you know, the most you can do is what I call an homage. So that's kind of what I do. And when I first saw this question, I thought, well, there aren't really any commercial beers I strive to replicate. But then I actually thought of two of them. One is uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. I, I love that beer. It is such a great, tasty, straight-ahead beer. And I use uh, Crispy Fry's Nearly Nirvana recipe, which is uh, nearly a perfect recreation of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. The other one that I try and get really close to is West Mall Triple. Uh, I am a huge fan of that beer, and to tell you the truth, that's the next batch that I'm going to brew is going to be West Mall Triple. I don't slavishly use the same ingredients. I don't even know what kind of hops they use. But I go for the same overall qualities for a little bit on the phenolic side, relatively bitter, that kind of thing. So those are those are my two. Uh, how about you, man? Do you do anything like that? Nope. <laughs> Nothing at all, huh? No. I mean, uh, my closest thing I do to cloning is taking inspiration from and putting my own spin on something. So obviously, I do that with a lot of uh, a lot of saisons. I think the only thing. The only ones I think I've ever actually tried to recreate were Gumball Head from Three Floyds, uh, but I haven't done that one in years. And then the other one would actually be Avec le Bon Vue from uh, Brasserie Dupont. You know, that that's one of my favorite beers in the entire universe. And so my hoppy saisons are sort of inspired by that concept, but none of them are straight clones. Yeah, and I have to admit that none of mine are straight clones either, although with the Sierra Nevada, I do pretty much stick to the uh, official ingredients. But again, I'm not so much 
trying to make an exact replica of the beer as I am trying to incorporate the attributes of that beer into my own. I agree. So now, you know what? I think now, now we get to go home? Well, I don't know about you. I am at home. Oh, yeah, that's right. All right. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook, Instagram. Drew hangs out on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrew channel. You can find me on a whole bunch of different beer forums out there, like the uh, the AHA forum, uh, Beer Borg, uh, Brews Brothers. I hang out on Facebook a lot talking beer. Uh, it's hard not to find me someplace. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or experiments or even just rant and rave at us, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get in touch with each one of us, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can always leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL. And you can also text us at that number. You can actually text us at that number? You can text us at that number. So send us a text message. Wow, that's pretty cool. Technology, it moves on. So uh, until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky and get ready. Our next all Q&A show. It's in January, January 16th. Get your questions ready. Start thinking hard. <laughs> really? You've got, you've got six months to get ready for it. So we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.